0: The Guardian.
1: Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we look at the controversy over some of the media's coverage of the Woolwich Killing, plus the BBC rattles its saber in its £5 million dust-up with sky. And Global Radio's plans for world domination, or bits of the UK at least, suffer a setback at the hands of the Competition Commission. All this plus Mad Men and the launch of the Xbox One. Want one? What in these economic times? Are you kidding? This is media talk from the Guardian, and we're joined this week by media consultant and media Guardian regular, Mr. Paul Robinson, and by Helen Zaltzman, one half of the Answer Me This podcast. Welcome
2: both. Hello, John. Hi.
1: Busy media week, he says, hoping for a yes.
2: Oh gosh, very busy, exciting week actually, good week, lots to talk about. Top that, Helen.
3: I can't, I couldn't possibly.
2: But you've got a,
1: you've got a new delivery coming today, but yes, uh, yes. tell
3: us. It, it is an exciting media week, but it's also an exciting week for me getting a kitchen cupboard delivered as soon as we've done this podcast.
1: Has it been a long time without one? Have you had eggs all over the floor
3: <laughs> it's peaches just rolling
1: op- everywhere? Open
3: plan filing system.
1: Really, oh, that's yeah. my favourite. We start this week with the horrific events in Woolwich, South East London. The media coverage, both on television and the newspapers, proved controversial. I spoke to Media Guardian columnist and much else beside Roy Greenslade and started by asking him, were the vivid and frankly quite shocking front page pictures of one of the alleged killers, were they defensible?
4: Well, I thought it was defensible. It's a a completely unusual situation, which therefore uh, warrants unusual coverage. Uh, I don't think we've ever had such an example of what might be called almost a public murder in which um, one of the alleged murderers uh, runs towards uh, the cameras and starts justifying the unjustifiable by explaining uh, why he had carried out this particular crime. And the pictures, the graphic pictures, are, and we often use this word, don't we, are unprecedented, but they are unprecedented. I can't think of another example where a person still, uh, as it were, bearing the weapon with which it's claimed that he carried out this murder and covered in blood um, is shown on every front page or almost every front page anyway.
1: What did you make of the the criticism that, uh, well, a a couple of points, I guess, one that it's too graphic for a front page picture, and perhaps more importantly, that um, it's giving the the alleged killers exactly the the sort of coverage and publicity that they want. And in turn, it might sort of feed into copycat killings. And for that reason, shouldn't have used such graphic images on the front page and maybe not anywhere in the paper.
4: Okay, uh, let's do with the graphic business, first of all. My young grandsons were at my side when these pages were on my table this morning, and it prompted loads of questions from them and a discussion. Uh, But I don't think that they were entirely alarmed by the pictures themselves, but were shocked by what the pictures meant. I don't think, really, in these circumstances, that papers can be too lily-livered, which takes me on to the second point about whether or not giving this person publicity will cause copycats and I think we can't edit newspapers and decide what will be published on the basis uh, that it might cause feeble-minded people to go and do stupid things uh, evil things criminal acts because otherwise we would publish hardly anything at all I think this was an unusual thing to do uh, in the circumstances but then the circumstances themselves are bizarre, rare, horrific, senseless. You know, we run out of adjectives to describe uh, what happened. But the very fact that it had been all over social media all day, that these pictures had been available through Twitter, that the film was available, uh, the film clips were available, every angle had been taken, we saw the body in the road, which is also, by the way, a disturbing image, I think it was impossible for newspapers, would have looked really strange if they'd simply ignored the fact.
1: Uh, it was a scoop for ITV. You hesitate to talk about scoops when it's such a horrific uh, story, Roy. But the, you know they got hold of the the video footage from from the camera phone of the, the person who interviewed uh, one of these two people, uh, and, and that was uh, it Picked up by all the other news outlets.
4: When people take these um, uh, films nowadays, they realise they are saleable or at least, and I don't know if this person sold it, but uh, they realise at least that mainstream media will want um, the opportunity to perhaps run them. And they obviously um, uh, chose ITV in this case. It could easily have been the BBC or Sky. And ITV, I think generously, but also understandably, decided that they they were happy enough um, for these to go to the newspapers. I noticed they get plenty of credits for having done so.
1: I mean, it showed the power, the power of the sort of, um, well, citizen journalist, a bit of an old old hack phrase now, isn't it? But
4: uh... the, the phrase citizen journalist has no point here. Is it? It's just a member of the public responding as people do nowadays to almost every event, whether it's their, you know, their dog doing tricks or their children falling over or a horrific incident like this. People simply live now on their camera phones.
1: And one striking uh, but sort of sidebar to the whole thing really was that I'm sure you noticed, Roy, was the woman sort of carrying her shopping trolley who appeared in the distance and then sort of wandered past the chap wielding the, the meat cleaver. Bailey looked up but seemed to have no idea at all of what was going on around her. It sort of uh, maybe showed, that showed uh, an insight into the way we sort of live our lives today.
4: Well, it does, but in a strange sense, isn't that how these things happen? If you look at, um, uh, say, examples from Baghdad after a bomb has gone off people are going about within 10 minutes of the most horrific incident happening as if um, the world is just carrying on which of course it does I think that in a suburban street uh, there can be a commotion this woman probably wasn't aware of the exact nature of what had happened and was just going on with life as she's lived it and wishes to live it uh, in blithe ignorance of what's going on around her.
1: Well, also this week, Roy, uh, in the media, uh, a slight change change of tone here, but Boris Johnson was back in the news uh, when he'd rather not have been.
4: Yes, well, Boris uh, Johnson had an affair with a woman some years ago, and they had a baby, and um, the woman has been very keen, or at least her supporters, because she didn't sue herself, have been very keen uh, to keep the baby uh, and the nature of the affair out of the newspapers And they sued to prevent newspapers from publishing what appears to be the truth. The Daily Mail fought on against this and was finally vindicated when the judges decided, the appeal court judges, that the original judge who said, look, there's a public interest in knowing this. And the appeal court judges absolutely repeated that, saying that because of Boris's special position, uh, it was right for the electorate to know what kind of person he was and therefore publication was in the wider public interest and they should go ahead.
1: Is this likely to be sort of a a one-off? Well, not in relation to Boris, but does it have wider implications for this sort of thing in the future and and, and as far as what the press can report, do you think?
4: Uh, I think that we ought to say that if people stand for public office and Philander, then the papers will say that there is a need for those who elected them uh, to know what kind of person they are, and that includes their morals. We might not like it. We might, in fact, believe that we shouldn't know that. And certainly that was my reaction. You know, the the argument on the other side um, is fair enough. And I think I broadly agree with the judges in this case. What I think is so interesting, John, is that I doubt uh, that it will make much difference to uh, Boris Johnson's electoral prospects, because he's been caught philandering before. He has another child out of marriage. Um, also reported at the time, and people have sort of taken that on board. They've discounted Boris's philandering, and they think it plays part of his character, and they're completely unworried by this sort of business. Of course, newspapers would say, well, then it's quite fair for us to publish it. So, um, OK, let's go ahead. It's just part of that, that strange thing called Boris.
1: Well, my thanks to Roy Greenslade there, and plenty more on that story, I am sure, on mediaguardian.co.uk. But in other media news this week, uh, and Paul, I think we'll, we'll start off with you, uh, Global Radio. Uh, I said they had plans for world domination. They pretty much dominate the uh, UK radio landscape already, home to Classic FM and Capital and Hart and what have you. But they hope to get bigger with their purchase of GMG radio, including uh, smooth and real radio. But uh, it's hit the, uh, not quite hit the buffers, but it's, it's not panned out quite as they would have liked. Tell us about it.
2: Well, it's not gone at all well. I mean, they must be very disappointed the Competition Commission have actually upheld their preliminary finding, which is that in seven markets, they need to dispose of radio stations in order to preserve competition. They've been given a tick in London and the West Midlands. The issue here is not about um, diversity of, of format or indeed about whether they should be allowed to make the real stations into heart or the uh, smooth stations into gold or vice versa. It's about advertising and the price of airtime. Um, and a substantial part of Global's argument was based on what are called Kuno effects. And the idea is that when you sell... it again, what effects? Kuno effects. K- Kuno. Kuno effects. It's What's an economic that? model. And the idea is this, that when you've got complementary products and you sell them, if, you, if one of the products has its price reduced, the theory is that will actually cause there to be greater demand. So what Global argued was that when they're selling complementary products, either in terms of different brands or geographically complementary products, advertising products, what would happen is that they would be incentivized to offer deeper discounts if they owned GMG than if they didn't own GMG. In other words, they were arguing there'd be benefits for advertisers of them owning rather than the converse. Um, the Competition Commission didn't buy it at all. Um, they said, no, uh, this is going to uh, negatively impact if advertisers. It's going to actually cause prices to go up. Uh, and therefore, on competition grounds to preserve competition, you Global Radio have got to dispose of stations. And in seven markets, they have to dispose. And they've issued a list of options in terms of what they can dispose of. And it's a pretty severe list. I mean, they're going to have to actually lose in East Midlands, Cardiff, North Wales, Manchester, the North East, South and West Yorkshire, and Central Scotland, either a capital or a heart or a real, or or both. Uh, So severe, severe loss. Now, this isn't the first time, of course, the Competition Commission have thrown out mergers in commercial radio. I mean, famously, uh, there was the GWR acquisition of Galaxy Radio, uh, which caused them to sell that to Chrysalis. Uh, There was the LBC one then capital, of course, the capital acquisition of Virgin Radio was thrown out. And fundamentally, the question here is, do you think that radio stations, in terms of advertising, act in isolation? In other words, is the radio advertising market a sealed system where you, if you're going to buy radio, you buy just radio? So therefore, if prices go up, you as an advertiser are penalised. And the Competition Commission argument in rejecting global relies wholly on, yes, that being the case. Uh, I think that is actually wrong. Um, What's happened over time is that television advertising prices have come down. You can now buy regional television spots. You don't just have to buy the whole network. You can now buy transmitters or regions. And in fact, there are regions of the country where it's more expensive to buy a regional radio campaign than to buy a TV campaign. And then there's obviously choice of local press and there's also outdoor. So the reality is that... Advertisers don't think just about radio, they think about how they're going to spend their money with radio being part of the mix. And on that basis, you would say, really, Global should have been allowed to go ahead and acquire GMG. Now, they haven't said that, they've said, no, you know, you've now got to dispose. And I think it's a big issue because, um, effectively, the inability uh, to merge doesn't just impact negatively on radio, but it impacts negatively on newspapers. You know, the local newspaper industry has not been in the best of health for a while. If there was more consolidation allowed, that might well preserve local newspapers in many markets and would actually increase value of the merged entity and would preserve preserve those services. Well, I, mean, so I,
1: think, killing here? Well, I mean, I think… It seems strange, doesn't it? The, the whole kind of trend is a consolidation and media groups getting bigger and bigger and the Competition Commission has sort of said to the Global, no, this isn't going to happen, this, this part of radio. And it feels tough, you know. It seems to be a lot of... I mean, Paul's not the only person here, I think, who's saying, you know, this is wrong and Global should have been allowed to go ahead and do this.
3: Well, one of the arguments for them not being allowed to do it was that if they had managed to, then they would have just been impossibly bigger than the next rival, which I guess is Bauer. But then... Who else is going to buy these stations that now um, they're saying they have to sell off? Because they say, you know, if Bauer buys them, then you've got a similar problem whereby it's anti-competitive. So then who's left? It's UTV. What if UTV don't want them? What if they say, OK, we'll buy them for £5? What then? And there's a facetious way to make the argument, but... There's, there's 70 million at stake, which seems an awful lot of money. It just is remarkable that it's got to this stage, I think. Well the, mess. Is,
2: well, the issue too, of course, is, I mean, you're right, who's going to buy them? And I don't think there's any uh, UK player who can buy them, either because they haven't got the cash or because they themselves will not get into competition issues, given the ruling. So the buyer has got to come from outside. The word on the street is Clear Channel. But it may be they don't actually sell. Global may not actually sell these stations because they may be hoping for a change in law and in fact what could well happen is that television, newspapers and radio might get together and lobby for a change in the law, which I think is now highly likely. Radio's not been as effective as it might have been doing it on its own, but with other media it could well be. In which case I think you'll see uh, Global will not sell. What they'll do is they'll warehouse these stations into um, another company. Remember what matters for Global is not just about the ownership of the station you could argue what really matters is owning the advertising so if someone else runs the station but operates their format whether it's heart or it's capital or it's smooth that might be fine and a clear channel might do that and then when the law changes they could then absorb them back into global I think that is the most um, likely uh, scenario the other the thing is to say waiting
3: so, for the law to change
2: well no no I think, I think they may well do that I mean because otherwise there's so much destruction of value here if you look at what they've got to sell and what they've paid they've paid £70 Uh, Guardian uh, did really well because they sold without any regulatory restrictions. So the 70 million went through. The value of the stations they've got to dispose of is probably 20, 25 million. So you've lost about 45 to 50 million of shareholder value. The way to get that back is to warehouse them and then at some point in the future when the law changes a couple of years time to bring them back into uh, into Global. I mean, if not, it has to be said that if Global was a, a quoted company and not a private company, then the executives who've done this deal would probably be fired you know Stephen Myron Ashley Tabor Richard Park if they were working for a quoted company the stock would have plummeted and those guys would have been out on their ear now
1: well because they didn't put in the, uh, the as part of the deal with the Guardian they didn't uh, you know foresee this possibility happening and put in safeguards
2: well I mean it was clearly um, uh, either a bad decision or they were very badly advised I mean you know the the interim uh, findings have been upheld Uh, The submission by uh, Global to the Competition Commission was prepared by their lawyers. Um, It's absolutely not carried any weight with the Competition Commission. um, And they should never have got into a situation where they basically parted with 70 million um, for a deal that's been thrown out and thrown out so spectacularly by the Competition Commission. You know, it's a failure by management.
1: Well, we wait and see what happens next with those Global Stations or are they Global Stations? That's the big question. Next up, the BBC has raised the stakes in its row with Sky over the. Uh, this is all at retransmission fees. And uh, Helen, when you hear the word. Retransmission. retransmission doesn't necessarily get the hairs in the becky neck standing up but uh, <laughs> this is the £5 million that the BBC pays Sky a, a year uh, has to pay Sky uh, for the privilege of having their channels I think it's 49 TV and radio channels really? carried on the Sky platform yeah well Ca- when you
3: break it down per, per 49 then it's looking that's almost a, like a bargain
1: that's a bargain the BBC says well in fact we shouldn't be paying Sky at all in fact Sky seeing as the majority of uh, viewing on the, on the pay TV platform is to public service channels like the BBC then in fact Sky should be paying the BBC so we ended up it would appear with a bit of a mexican standoff
3: are you allowed to use that term in this day and age john
1: well i don't know maybe sort of a one with water pistols
3: text in text in people <laughs> yeah. uh that's a as a license fee payer um i am a bit uh shocked that my money is going to a broadcast organization that people pay 40 odd quid a month to have pumped into their living rooms which i don't i don't have sky And also, £5 million uh, is almost the entire budget of BBC4, which uh, always seems to be the first in line to get the axe when uh, they're saying the BBC needs to cut down, which is a, a tiny amount of money for a station to be operating on. So it's not a lot of money, but it is a lot of money to give to Sky when Sky are making money from consumers. So I am a bit dubious of it, and the same goes for the other publicly funded channels.
1: Paul, what do you make of this? Because BBC says, "Well, you know, we're helping you make hundreds of millions of pounds a year," but Sky say, so, well, "Hang on a minute, there is a cost as, uh, associated with this distribution, and us putting you on Sky. So, you know, five million pounds—a bargain."
2: Look, I, I can understand why people feel sensitive about money from the licence fee going to BSkyB. Totally get that. £5 million pounds is still a lot of money, although it's half what it was a couple of years ago. Um, I think the issue is um, the BBC and the other public service channels are not a differentiator for Sky when Sky is selling subscriptions to customers. So I don't think having the BBC channels on Sky in any way helps Sky to make profits. I just don't think an argument holds water at all. The reality is you can get all the public services on DTT anyway. Uh, so they're there. They're, they're, they're not different. I think the key question here is whether Sky is genuinely incurring costs in distributing BBC via uh, B-Sky B. and if they are it's probably fair they pass those costs on if they're actually making a profit on the BBC I think that's a different question. There clearly is bandwidth that has to be paid for, that's probably bought on the market so there's some costs there You know, I don't know what the actual costs are The um, reality is that um, the BBC cannot expect to get this for free, why should Sky subsidise the BBC? But
3: Virgin don't uh, charge the same fee do they? That's Dif-
2: right. Different because Uh, they're not renting bandwidth from the market. You know, Virgin is going down a pipe, not going down someone third party's bandwidth. The other issue here, of course, is the government have weighed in uh, firmly on the side of the BBC. And I think, therefore, the BBC should be very careful because if they were to get the £5 back from Sky, I think you can't assume the BBC would keep the £5 The government might pocket it.
3: What do you think, though? I mean, the BBC is one thing, and people always get very uh, antsy about uh, BBC money, but this also covers... uh ITV, Channel 4 and uh, Channel 5. It doesn't. All public service broadcasts. Yeah, spare any change for Channel 5
2: well I mean it's about distribution isn't it I mean the BBC rightly you know is about reach and and we want the BBC to be uh, available to everybody as easily as possible on as many platforms you know it's why you know the BBC iPlayer has just gone open so it can actually get greater ubiquity and of course we want the BBC to be uh, you know available everywhere so it's on Sky and the BBC wants to be on Sky but the BBC can't expect Sky to subsidize the BBC I think what I'd like to see is transparency that the real cost Sky is incurring in putting the BBC on its platform is passed on to the BBC but no more the actual cost Yeah,
3: and also sky spending all that money on uh, buying up all of the good american tv shows and on the other channels can have them
1: yeah so maybe they're spending bbc money on mad men so maybe this is give us network.
3: back mad men
1: <laughs> uh it's very it was very good last week uh, uh and paul but sticking with the bbc uh, also change at the top of current affairs there but they, they split the role there used to be uh, one person one executive clive edwards used to be in charge yeah. of commissioning current affairs shows and also sort of uh, executing all the in-house current affairs content Uh, Now, there's going to be two people, uh, one of them, one of whom still be Clive Edwards, and it feels like this is. Uh, well the link wasn't made explicitly but Tony Hall says he wants to put more oomph into current affairs and it does feel like this is a bit of a response to you know the various calamities we've had over the last 6-12 months.
2: Yeah it, it is a response and, and to some extent you can't blame Tony Hall because you could argue that putting more managerial um, muscle in here to scrutinise things so that maybe there's less chance of the hiccups that have happened in the past many of them is is a good thing so clearly in terms of PR and perception you know Tony Hall's doing that and I think you can't blame him for that. In many ways of course what this does is bring BB see news and current affairs in line with every other genre in a sense that in other genres there are commissioners and there are uh, producers so you know in that sense it makes sense. I think if you've got you know two people who are generally looking at what is being made and what is being commissioned and having a proper dialogue it must help I think to ensure the BBC uh, doesn't fall into the traps it's fallen into it and I, I welcome it because I think the alternative would be for the BBC to become more cautious and I think we want our public service broadcaster to be ambitious to do original journalism to do investigative journalism and if this uh, keeps them brave and ambitious uh, and stops them getting cautious about it and, and and thinking about risk too much that's a very good thing
1: and there's also uh, of course paul the new editor of today he was announced last week the same day as uh, the new Newsnight man and it is a guy a chap called jamie angus who's a former editor of um,
2: world at one well, I hope that uh, John Humphreys is uh, happy. He's been uh, talking publicly a great deal about uh, his stance at the departure of the previous editor. So I'm sure that relationship is important. And uh, uh, given uh, John Humphreys, I think on this podcast actually said he was uh, only contracted till November. it would be interesting to see how that relationship develops.
1: Okay. And also this week, a very exciting bit of technology on the podcast. Always love that. And uh, particularly love consoles. Because uh, speaking to a man, you're looking at a man who uh, his last console was Nintendo 64. So I used to very much enjoy playing gold now and then. So as you can imagine, I'm very excited by the launch of Xbox One. Uh, which, uh, just in case you don't know what it is, chaps, of course you do know, it's got a 500GB hard drive, 8GB memory, built-in Blu-ray player, connector standard, new Wi-Fi connected, improved D-pad controller, and I'm particularly excited by the tactile feedback, (laughs) which uh, no relationship should be without. Um, (laughs) Helen, what what is the Xbox and why should I I be excited by it?
3: Well, because it does everything in in your life, John, including the uh, tactile feedback. Um, I think what's exciting about it is that... um, if it works it's supposed to have voice controls and uh, motion controls and uh, I've got a PS3 and if you're trying to uh, use it to do anything uh, web related it takes forever to enter in your password etc if you could just say it that'd be great I think there's this imperative for consoles not just to be games consoles now they seem to get criticised if they are just games consoles but I do wonder whether people want something that is promises so much does that mean that it won't do any of those things particularly well? that's the worry but I suppose we'll find out
1: yeah, Paul, because this is kind of being pitched as sort of one size fits all web connected device that will do live TV, play films, TV shows, Blu-ray, and
2: you can play games on it as well, and Skype, by all accounts. Yeah, game seems incidental
3: yeah. after all of that, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the
2: thing is, what's this about? Microsoft want to be at the centre of the home entertainment hub, and um, you know what was interesting was looking at those uh, figures from BBC iPlayer, showing that in fact the number of um, requests for TV programs on the Xbox hasn't grown over the past year, and that's because the distribution has not has not grown. Um, And so, you know, this is about getting Xbox consoles out there so that uh, Microsoft can be at the center uh, of the home. And they want to do that so they can sell all the Xbox Live services. That's where they make the money. So, you know, you can't sell them if you haven't got the distribution. Um, At the end of the day, uh, this is just another box in the home uh, that is actually, uh, you know, rivaling the connected TV. I mean, it's an internet connected box that gets you television, also gets you gaming. The reality is all these things are coming together and Microsoft wants, its share of the pie. It's you know, under competition from um, pay players, under competition from Samsung and all the other smart TV manufacturers. This is them saying we're going to you know, put our best feet forward, we're going to have all this technology. Um, but also the other thing I liked about this and it goes with your, your cupboard actually yeah. is that <laughs> they've, redesigned, they've redesigned the Xbox. I don't know if you know this. It, it was all curvy. It's now gone all square. And it now should be th- Xbox. Right. It, it's, got, it's now a box. Uh, it truly is a box. But the innovation is it can now stand up or lie down. Down. and for me Ooh. that's the deal clincher
3: it's like a five-month-old baby
2: yeah so you can you can position <laughs> it in any position you like and it will still work
1: and i think what you touched on it there um uh helen about you know can you still play games on it it's a bit like a, a bit like a smartphone isn't it they're the, making calls on it's almost the last thing you think about now it i maybe didn't know my phone could do that
3: how novel <laughs> i must try it one day i watch iplayer using um a playstation 3 and uh, the trouble with that is just the the interfaces not just iPlayer ITV player and uh, the Channel 4 player are a bit ropey so I think the success of this is slightly dependent on the factors outside of their control.
2: The other thing that's really cool about this is Kinect is actually integrated into the box for the first time. And uh, there's now some really cool games where actually using Kinect, you can actually put yourself into the game. I've seen this with some of the kids' games where, you know, you can get kids to sort of learn stuff. But in fact, they, you put them into the characters. So suddenly they're there with Fuzzy Bear or whoever it is. Well, on the at, screen. On the screen, on the TV, playing along, using the Kinect. So this is now integrated rather than being a separate device. That's a really great innovation. Which I think is fun and, and gives them a, an advantage in the market.
1: God, it's a long way from Jet Set Willy on the ZX Spectrum 16K, isn't it? Never which, heard of
2: it, John. Far too What? Young.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Daily Thompson's Decathlon? Oh,
2: you're just about.
1: Yeah, I remember What's that. What was Grandad? Oh, yeah, indeed. Well, I'll tell you what, it didn't cost 399 Well, actually, the ZX Spectrum did probably cost about 399 probably quid. Probably more, day, actually. Without the, the 48K RAMPEG extension, which always used to fall off. You talk to yourself. Uh, kids today don't know what they're bored it, There's nothing to match the excitement of waiting for five minutes for a program to load from a cassette tape and well, then it crashing minutes. at the last minute. Yeah, yeah. 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 had that a lot. We've all had that. Yeah. Um, uh, John Plunkett Nostalgia Night is on at the uh, <laughs> Islington M1 Club on Thursday night. Uh, well, my thanks to you both. Uh, I think Paul might be getting an Xbox One, but I reckon that Helen's going to stick with her PS3. Am I right?
3: I am a little bit ambivalent about the games consoles.
1: Robo, you're going to get one definitely. You I'm going to gonna get to one. But you go,
2: I'm going to get one definitely. because I think it sounds fantastic, but I think you should think about what's going to go best on your cupboard because that's the most important. <laughs> thing. If there's space with the eggs, yeah. I think you should think about it because you could actually stand it up and then the eggs can fit alongside.
3: I can I can rest it on any of its edges. Exactly. As you've enlightened me.
2: Next
1: week's podcast will be live from Helen Zaltzman's new kitchen cupboard. <laughs> My thank you both to Mr. Paul Robertson and to Helen Zaltzman.
0: This week on The Guardian Audio Edition.
1: Tracy McVeigh writes about the fury at corporate tax avoidance. Robin McKee investigates the medical potential of cloning cells from our own DNA. Zan Brooks in Cannes meets director Baz Luhrmann. And in our audiobook review, we celebrate 50 years since the publication of Richard Feynman's Lectures on Physics.
0: To subscribe for free to The Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk. Or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture.
1: Recently I spoke to James Brown, who you may know as the former and indeed founding editor of Loaded. He now runs online magazine Sabotage Times. Uh, we talked about various things, including Twitter, music, and why he's decided to ditch his television set, The Horror. But he also told me a little bit about how he runs Sabotage Times. Here's James Brown.
5: Twitter's been really important for Sabotage. We have over 800,000 people visit the site a month. And we don't spend any money on advertising or marketing. We don't have any gambling or porn or any We don't do any celebrity content, really. We review a few TV shows. Um, do, you, do you
1: make money, James?
5: Yeah, well, come on to that. Yeah, right. We do. What we do is we find people on Twitter. Invariably, they've got 170 followers and they've got a blog and you click through and they're really great writers and we can then host that blog and just deliver them a lot of traffic back uh, and give them a platform and a great example is there's a guy I follow called Steve in Disguise who's got a little picture of a clown as an avatar, quite scary looking clown and he's always slagging off his customers. and I wrote to him about three months ago and said are you really a disgruntled owner of a pet shop and you really hate your customers and he just tweeted about it, yes and yes <laughs> and I said well I've been enjoying your tweets do you fancy trying to write an article about it and you know he'd never he'd never written anything and he asked all the questions when people who aren't writers ask you know how long should it be how should he start it? and I said well as I do of anyone who's started writing just just imagine you're writing a letter to somebody you know, don't try and get a real style going, just write a letter to somebody, explain why you've got a pet shop and why you hate it. And he wrote this brilliant piece, it was absolutely fantastic, and I put it on, and even bigger than the big football stories that day, it was the most, uh, you know, it was the most viewed story on sabotage. And I, and I love stories like that, and we found lots of writers like that who were pretty much out there floating around, and we even end up giving them commercial work, or they come in and they use us as a platform, and then we recommend them to people who are looking for staff. Now, you asked about um, how, do we do we have a business out of it? When I started sabotage, I realised that if we were just going to go down the route of advertising, we'd have to compete with the Guardian, with Google, with Yahoo, with YouTube, with the Times, News International, with the, with all the magazine companies. So, for us, advertising, which is the traditional Print revenue was just something we thought we'd just have as the icing on the cake. And we never really thought about it particularly. And um, the only thing that we said about advertising was we would say no to kind of cheap-looking adverts, you know, those sort of things, where it's just horrible drawing of a big, fat belly. And um, so we've always had really good brands to advertise. But it doesn't really make us any money. It kind of just pays for, like, part-time editor in Tunbridge, Wales, and a part-time editor in Northampton. It pays for an office for us to be in. But where we've built a business is sitting in that space where publishers are no longer receiving revenue from brands because brands themselves want to be publishers. Brands want to create content, not content about their brand. They just want to house content and put their commercial messages around it. And they want to put it on Tumblers that we build for them, on their Facebook, uh, distribute it through Twitter and other forms of social media. And in the last 16 months, we've worked for for five months for Puma, starting around the African Cup of Nations. And that started off with, can you cover it for us? And we took over their Twitter, and the quote from Terence, who is the global head of marketing, said, never mind the number of tweets, look at the fucking figures. And just by putting good content on that platform, the engagement rocketed.
1: James, you got rid of your TV, but I, I'm a little bit sad about that because watching something on a, uh, watching a, a film or a TV show on a computer isn't the same as, you know, your 42-inch surround sound cinema job. So no, it's fine. That?
5: It's fine. It's absolutely fine. You know, just sitting there with a telly. But, you know, the real <laughs> aim is just to get rid of this, all of this stuff. The uh, I was in Mystique with Felix Dennis recently, who used to be the chairman of my company, and... Um, one of my friends said to him, because he's got this amazing place, and he's in good health, which was good, it was good because he, he wasn't well last year. He, he was in great form. I bet he's got a big TV. He hasn't got a television. No. One of my friends said, how have you done all this? Why have you got this drive? Because uh, he is an unstoppable beast, really, Felix. And uh, he said, I don't have a television. I don't have a television. I've never sat around... You know, when the rest of us are spending ages thinking, "Oh God, I don't want to watch Waterloo Road. I don't want to watch Holby City. Oh God, <laughs> I don't. Why am I, don't, I, don't, that. I don't, well, I'm watching Stoke Fulham? That dependency on television. is writing poems. I'm making money out of writing poems. But in terms of what we do for work, some some of the most important things we do is the the, the biggest thing is the analytics, and and we don't sit there at sabotage. And search for things that are working on the SEO, and then just copy them, like you know, a lot of brands do. But you c- Google Analytics is totally addictive. You can see who everybody who is reading your site, what they're reading, how long they're reading it for, where they're reading, how many times they've been before. I don't know if you've seen it, but real-time Google Analytics—it's like seeing your heart monitor. <laughs> you know, you get—I get a text going. Put analytics on, there's, like, there's 400 people on now. Or, you know, when we first started using it, put them on, we've had 17,000 views. But then you forget you've got a website to run. Yeah, well, no, but you, it does. It becomes rather than just thinking, I'll write another article, or I'll commission another piece, or I'll renose an old piece, which actually would drive you some more analytics. You just sit there staring at this live heartbeat of your site. So I spend a lot of time looking at it. Oh, again, I, I stopped doing it for a couple of weeks. Then I get hooked on it again.
1: OK, James Brown, I think I can hear your phone going off, so we better move on. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Well, that was Mr James Brown there. And you can see more of that interview. That's right, it's a video on the Guardian website, mediaguardian.co.uk. It's time to talk television now with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well. Excellent, excellent. Now, we're gonna, this week we're going to take in opulence... And frankly, life on the uh, on the doll, on the breadline. Yep. And let's start there with a new Channel 4. It's not a well, new-ish Channel 4 series called Skint.
0: Yes, episode two was on this week. It's three parts, so we're halfway through. This, I feel, is, has been packaged in a way that's slightly misleading because it's been packaged as a kind of real-life shameless. It's sort of slightly jaunty to start with, and you think, oh, maybe this is another little bit of poverty porn and voyeurism and made me feel, you know, that kind of thing. It made me feel slightly uncomfortable. But actually, I hope that people who tuned in and expected that took something else from it because it was actually very sad and very moving and the sort of television that makes you angry because it shows you what happens if a family with five kids suddenly has their benefits stopped due to a bureaucratic error and they've got four quid left it shows you what happens it shows you that that this whole idea of doll scum you know and i'm saying that with the air quotation marks in giant
1: inverted commas in yes
0: giant inverted commas but it takes that idea and shows you the reality behind it and i found it very moving there's a 16 year old girl who ends up living in a crack den and she wants to make that a home and that kind of storyline is is very moving and also i'm from scunthorpe so it was nice to see, uh, Catch up on see Scunthorpe finally getting portrayed on the small screen well, in a programme called Skint.
1: <laughs> well, uh, there's a publication I always read, the Scunthorpe uh, Telegraph. Yes, and some readers have uh, written in, which is always good, and we're grateful uh, listeners. A few uh, uh, write into on Twitter at John Plunkett 149. But uh, and they said, well, they weren't happy. They said, well, it only showed the worst of Westcliff, which I guess is part of Scunthorpe. Uh, and well, I mean, it's called
0: Skint. They're not. It would be if they just showed people who weren't so skint. It makes it a slightly misleading title.
1: Someone else said the producers only went with the stereotypical. Poverty can affect everyone. Why do they have to put the stereotypical patriarch of a very large family? But they did go for the gun, kind of the Frank Gallagher character, or was that have that's I fallen one, for that's the kind one of real I, life shameless. Thing?
0: No, that's that's one storyline, and that I think is the idea that it's a real life shameless. But that's actually only one and there there have been a number of different stories and I found the stories involving women particularly uh, So it in important. It I think so. I mean it looks as if it's going to exploit And I think it's packaged in a slightly questionable way. You know, it's like hashtag skint. And there's been a lot of talk about it on Twitter.
1: Yeah, pulled in the viewers, three million viewers. Three
0: million viewers, yeah. And I think it was the most tweeted program of the night, both uh, both episodes. So it's getting the conversation around it. But there's a lot more to it, I think, than uh, just a kind of jaunty... Is shameless in Scunthorpe.
1: Yeah, shameless, which, which comes to an end. Of course, is it the was it the last episode, penultimate episode this week? I think it's next week, isn't it? Is it? So yeah. Oh
0: the, yeah, penultimate. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. penultimate this week. Nah. What, penultimate. That's what does that Norton mean? Said at the BAFTA, <laughs> that means second last. Okay, the, good. I'm, I'm glad for that reminder. <laughs>
1: uh, okay, next up, Love and Death.
0: Love and Death in City Hall. Not the Woody Allen film. Not the Woody Allen film. This was a. Just wonderful documentary. I I like to have a weekly cry at 24 hours in A&E and it varies, you know, the the amount of time I get into it before having a cry does vary week, week on week. It wasn't very I would long cry at the opening grillets because <laughs> I've got to watch
1: 24 hours in A&E.
0: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your heart, John?
1: Oh, I do a bit of One Born Every Minute.
0: Do you see? But I don't do that one. I do 24 mm-hmm. hours in a But isn't it
1: the same episode over and over again with different limbs?
0: Different limbs, various ailments. But usually there's something that makes me cry. I always think so if anyone actually a hand holding last night.
1: Ooh. Hang on, i just going to get on my high horse. Oh Go god, on. it's a bit tight fit in the studio. Here <laughs> it uh, I think turning to Steve Wright. But I, you know, if anyone had actually spent 24 hours in a which I have um, probably. You wouldn't. You'd never watch one of those programs. You'd think, Oh my god, not, these poor people. But you if know. they followed
0: one person for 24 hours and e with a broken toe or something, then. The drama's not there. The tension's not there. But I find, I think it's lovely. The way they they put the stories together and the relationships between people. I find it slightly terrifying as well. Yeah. I, 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 it gives me a bit of a, an existential crisis. I would the say the camera. put your
1: cameras down. Yeah. Go out, buy these people chicken and chips in a large group. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and show them where the smoking area is. Yeah. Not that I... Fair enough. I eat chicken, but I don't. Don't smoke. Right. Uh, but glad, anyway, so... I'm glad we've cleared that up. Yep, Love and Death. <laughs> Maybe that won't make it, but Love and, so death, love in City and Hall. death in City Hall. So Love and Death in City Hall.
0: BBC Four it was on. BBC Four, and it was a one-off. It's taken the place of 24 Hours in A&E as my uh, cry-at-the-telly moment this week. So this is set in Belfast City Hall, and it's one of those shows where you just can't quite believe that nobody's made it before. It's a documentary following uh, the registrars at City Hall, so births, marriages, and deaths. And then it pans out, and you get the wider stories of the people who are coming to register these things, and it's just lovely. And it made me cry twice—two Oh, man. Two, two cries.
1: So births, marriages, and deaths—that makes A yeah. and E look really. It does. It's basically
0: all of Channel Four's reality programming in one hour. On, yeah.
1: yeah. So, any chance you think it could be a series in there? Would you be, if you were the producer, you be going back to BBC Four saying, "Come on, guys"? Yeah,
0: absolutely. But I do think people should try and watch it on iPlayer if they didn't catch it because it's a really lovely thing.
1: Okay, uh, I will do. Maybe I will. You should do it. Okay.
0: I don't know if you'll like it, though. But okay. if you like if you like uh, One One Every Minute, there's a bit of that, so...
1: Yeah, I kind of have to watch that for the week. That's <laughs> right. And finally this week, a programme which... Uh, Mad Men.
0: You may have heard of it.
1: Yeah. And, uh, no, I haven't seen uh, this week's episode, so we're going to... Uh, uh, no spoilers, but that might be impossible.
0: I think it's going to be impossible. The reason I thought we should talk about this this week is that it, it's had one of those episodes that is a real event episode, and they tend to have one a series, and... People have been talking about this. Uh, New York magazine did a recap of all the recaps because it's been dissected so much, uh, which is very funny. But yeah, so this is one of those episodes. It's Sopranos-esque in that it's a dreamlike moment. I'm trying to talk about it without talking about yeah, what right. happens, I go right. just Go for it, just skewer think... me, go on. So everyone's on speed so so lots of things happen in this episode there are time lapses it's very weird you don't quite know what's real and what isn't it's very strange I loved it and actually I've been enjoying this series a lot of people have been yes, criticising so it but I think it had a slow start but I think they always have slow starts the first two or three episodes are never strong and I think it's really hit stride Martin Luther King Bobby Kennedy speed injections in the bum it's really it's really dead going somewhere drugs. dead people and <laughs> ratings drugs.
1: heaven yeah, no, but stuff's been happening, hasn't it? The last few episodes, you know, big stuff's been happening and some people seem to take offense at that and say, "Hey, this isn't the Mad Men I know and love where nothing happens and it goes really, really slowly and all kind of feels a bit existential." But recently it's felt like a traditional drama. No, 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 no worse for it.
0: No, I do. I've never really had any sort of agreement with that argument that nothing happens in Mad Men anyway. I think lots of things happen. It just happens at its own pace. I never really understood that argument. Uh, did you?
1: I did. Yeah, that's why I just Outline <laughs> outlined it in massive detail. <laughs> but, you know, we had the merger. Uh, oh, spoilers. We had the merger. And then, uh, you know, Don has a comedy breakdown. I thought the moment where, where Don comes back after that weird sub-Dom uh, action. Oh, yeah. Uh, last week. And he comes back and she says, no, this is over, Dom. And his little boy l- lost He's face. Like, he looks all, uh, Kind yeah. of blubbing up.
0: Hey, well, he says, um, please, doesn't he? Just one word. And, that for
1: me. Is, yeah. hares, uh, literally now, listeners, uh, hairs on the back of the neck moment. Yeah. You
0: know? It was great.
1: Well, that's it, Madmen Men uh, is uh, ongoing. Uh, Love and Death and City Hall isn't.
0: No, nope, it was all. But one-off. it might be. I'd like it to be.
1: And Skint is back uh, next week.
0: Uh, last episode, it's three-parter.
1: Rebecca Nicholson, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all our guests, who are Roy Greenslade, Helen Zaltzman, Paul Robinson, Rebecca Nicholson, and Mr. James Brown. You can leave your comments on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.